Hey everyone, I want to welcome you back to another episode of Tiny Town. This is going to be our free episode for the month, and this episode is titled Take a Hike, Jerome Powell, Most Likely. So in this episode, we're basically going to be talking about the Fed just raising 50 basis points for the first time in two decades, um, why we were sort of in this sort of growth or valuations bubble in the first place, what's actively going on at this point in the markets, and what is the end game of what the Fed is doing today. Um, but before we get into this episode, I just want to say thank you to all of the Tiny Town subscribers out there that have been with me for the past year or so. Um, if you're new to Tiny Town, basically the way it works is um, I charge $19.99 a month. You get a podcast every single week, as well as a weekly update on my theta portfolio when I am selling options. Um, I do not keep any of this revenue. Um, all the revenue gets donated to Feeding America at the end of every single month, and then I am able to use that expense um, as a charitable donation for a tax write-off when I do pay my income taxes at the end of every single year. Um, so if you're interested in signing up, it's $19.99 a month or $199 a year, and you can find the link to that in the description below. I'm also actively working with a few people at the moment to try to set up some sponsorship opportunities, and if I'm able to close on those opportunities, then I will be taking the podcast public um, and releasing all the episodes on Apple and Spotify and Google and all the public podcasting platforms. For now, it'll remain private, um, but once I do close on some of those sponsorships opportunities, I will be taking it public and making it free for everybody now that the podcast has grown to a relatively decent size. So I appreciate all of that, and let's get right into this video. So in this episode, I want to talk about first um, that the Fed just raised interest rates 50 basis points. Um, for those of you that are a little unfamiliar with that term, basically they raise the interest rates of half a percent. Now typically they raise it a quarter percent or 0.25 percent, but this is the first time they've actively taken a step towards raising it um, half a percent for the first time since 2000. So as a result of that, everybody's going back to 2000 saying, well, what happened in 2000? And so they're going back to previous conclusions and they're finding that the 50 basis point hike was in March of 2000, which was um, about the time when the dot-com bubble burst. So everybody is saying that this hike is going to mark the top of, you know, whatever this bubble was. And, um, you know, that makes sense. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people can draw um, correlates, or excuse me, not correlates, parallels um, to a similar environment now, right? You had tech stocks going crazy. There was rampant speculation in options contracts. Valuations were sky high. Um, the only thing that's different now is that we have the highest inflation in 40 years. But I think something that people fail to consider is that the 30-year treasury back in the year 2000, or excuse me, the 10-year treasury was yielding about six or seven percent maybe eight percent i don't even remember so the idea that valuations were that high when interest rates and thus the risk-free yield of assets were that high at the same time uh, is a completely different environment now that is what something i would call a rampant bubble and of course it's easy to say that in hindsight whereas i feel the result of what we were experiencing in 2020 and 2021 um makes a lot more sense as to why valuations and, and certain stocks are behaving the way that they were, and I'll get to that in just a second. Um, it, to continue on about what we're going to talk about in today's episode, um, I want to explain what the Fed is actually trying to do in order to generate a soft landing. 
And so for those of you who haven't heard that term before, a soft landing means a period where interest rates are being raised, but not so fast or not wrong enough to the point where it slows down the economy too much to where we enter a recession. So a soft landing is you have this period of interest rates increasing, but the economic growth is not curbed to an extent to where we enter a recession. So of the 11 rate hike periods that we've had in history, five or six of those have been soft landings. So this is, you know, unironically leading us to this coin toss of a 50-50% probability, 50-50 chance that uh, this is a soft landing. Uh, so basically could go up, could go down, good luck. Um, but getting into the first part of this episode, I want to talk a little bit about why I think we were sort of in this growth valuations bubble in the first place. Um, and, and that really begins with understanding that capital has a risk-free premium to it. Um, and basically what I mean by a risk-free premium is that you are going to generate a return on the principal um, that you put in certain assets um, pretty much guaranteed except if the U.S. government defaults. And that is a very low probability. So that is what is considered a risk-free premium. Um, and that is basically best looked at with the 10-year treasury yield. Um, so basically the way a 10-year treasury yield works, you put a certain amount of principal into the 10-year treasury. Um, at the end of, uh, you will be paid uh, 3% or whatever the interest is on the 10-year treasury yield at the moment. 3% interest a year for 10 years. Um, and then you will be given back the principal balance, um, which is, let's say you put $10,000 into those bonds, you would give the $10,000 back plus the 3% interest each year. Um, so that is the risk-free premium. So this plays a substantial role in what makes valuations appropriate in traditional finance markets. Um, because what you have to understand is that stocks are competing for capital against bonds. But the difference between stocks and bonds is that uh, bonds, there is no, unless you were to sell out of your bond um, before the maturity date, which is the end of, say, that 10-year time frame, um, there is no actual volatility risk. There is no... Um, there is no risk of unrealized losses or realized losses because you are just handed back your principal at the end of the maturity. Um, whereas stocks, that is definitely not the case. Stocks are faced with volatility risk and whatnot. And so what you have to keep in mind is that people, bonds and that idea of risk-free premium is always competing with capital for stocks. And I think there are a lot of um, parallels into the idea of um, when we talk about 2020 and 2021, the same way that um, stocks in crypto, you know, growth-oriented stocks in crypto, I think function in a very similar manner, and I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but basically, when you understand that in 2020 and 2021, we saw huge inflows into stocks in cryptocurrency. And a lot of people are like pointing to the idea that like, oh, this was driven by stimulus checks and, and retail investors. And all of that is completely true. People fail to understand that there were 10-year interest rates, 10-year treasury yields were yielding like 0.1%. Okay. There was no risk-free rate. And there was infinite liquidity in the system thanks to the Fed purchasing 
uh, tons of treasury and mortgage-backed securities. So not only are you met with infinite liquidity, there is no other option but to allocate capital towards risk, right? And that is what you saw in 2020. You saw growth stocks with tremendous appreciation in price who were cash flow negative um, in 2020 and 2021. And you also saw tremendous price appreciation in crypto assets. And the reason for that is, yeah, of course, you know, stimulus checks probably played a factor, probably more in crypto than it did in traditional finance. But when you have this idea that you have a certain amount of capital and it's always competing for risk-free interest and risk interest, but... Um, that risk interest comes with volatility risk. When you have interest rates basically at zero, there is no risk-free premium. There is nowhere for your capital to compete. There is only one place for your capital, and that's allocating your capital towards a place where you're going to generate return, um, which in this case was the only choice was to put it in risk assets. So you had tremendous appreciation in these assets than a beneficiary of low interest rates because low interest rates uh, make it less competitive um, to put your assets in, in things like bonds. And so it makes it, it provides people more incentive to take more and more risk in order to generate returns because they don't have any other choice. At the same time, um, you know, you have all of these um, assets whose valuations are now tremendously affected by that risk-free premium, right? You, when interest rates and the discount rates of these things are tremendously low, you can basically value any stock at any price you want. It's always going to be like double what it currently is because um, the discount rate is so low. But um, what you have to keep in mind is that this environment is different now, right? Because you have 10-year treasuries yielding you know, 3% on their way to 3.5%. If you can earn without taking on any volatility risk, right? Like I think most people have heard of in traditional finance, there's this thing called the 4% rule. And basically what that means is you make 25 times, if you have 25 times the amount of money you spend in a year, then you can essentially retire for free because um, if you withdraw 4%, the market's going to generate returns higher than 4% on average. So you'll never run out of money, right? What I don't think people are considering now is that with interest rates being where they are, and potentially generating, you know, three and a half percent a year, there is now another asset aside from stocks um, where people could deploy their money without any risk of the principal balance being affected by volatility. And, you know, let's say they generate three and a half percent interest each year. Um, you know, they could retire at that point by putting their money into bonds, right? And generating that interest and uh, never having to touch another stock again or never having to deal with any sort of volatility really ever again. The only time where they get in trouble is if the U.S. government defaulted on itself. And, you know, chances are you wouldn't be able to retire anyways if that were to happen. So all of a sudden you have this interest rate that is very attractive, especially to um, institutions and older retail participants where they don't need to take risk anymore. And so I think that's something very, very interesting that people need to take into consideration because just two years ago, we were dealing with basically a 0% interest, and now you're dealing with an interest rate that will essentially allow people to comfortably retire for the rest of their life if it were to, if it were to stay at that interest rate. So interest rates pay, play a substantial role in the idea of risk. Um, so that is why I think that plays a tremendous role 
in what's happening with cryptocurrencies. You know, people people are making the you know the joke about you know the BTC five hundred or the Satoshi Nakamoto five hundred, and yes, they are incredibly correlated right now, but they're not correlated because the Fed itself has a huge plays a huge role in cryptocurrency, or because cryptocurrency plays a tremendous role in the financial system. Um, none of that is true yet, although I think those things are. On the horizon where they start play um you know where they continuously play larger and larger roles in the idea of personal finance but i think people have it wrong and why they have it wrong is because they're looking looking at it from the point of oh bitcoin is trading like the s p 500. no it's more so that the s p 500 is being affected by changes in interest rates and you know especially the nasdaq which is compiled of uh, growth oriented stocks and as a result you have Bitcoin and the NASDAQ trading very similarly because both of those are uh, the success of both the NASDAQ and cryptocurrency is dependent on growth and is dependent on low interest rates because that is what allows capital to compete for growth. So they're paying, not playing, interest rates are playing a substantial role in growth stocks and in crypto because I think they're both properly categorized as growth related assets. And everybody should know that growth gets absolutely crushed when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, actively trying to slow down the economy so that it can curb this rampant inflation that, you know, we haven't had in four decades. And so that's where I'm going to sort of transition a little bit into what's actually going on in this market at this moment. So we understand why the market was at sky-high valuations. The market was at sky-high valuation because interest rates were at zero. People had no other choice but to deploy their capital into risk environments. And because interest rates were so low, and that actively affects the rate at which you can discount to present value, stocks could be valued at basically anything, and they were always undervalued. But suddenly, you have this rapid appreciation in interest rates, and that is substantially going to affect the valuation that is appropriate at this moment in time. And, um, you know, in stocks, you're going to talk about valuation as it relates to cash flow. And in crypto, I think you have to understand the idea of interest rates and the role that they play in risk. Crypto is a huge beneficiary of lowering interest rates because lower interest rates allows capital to take on more risk. And when you have the tightening of that risk, um, you know, there is no longer as much an incentive to take astronomical risks that are, you know, present and possible in the crypto ecosystem. So the market was at sky high valuation because of that low interest rates. Um, but why exactly is that? making the markets head lower at this moment in time. Well, it's because the Federal Reserve has sort of communicated to markets that its number one priority is inflation and not employment. So traditionally, the Federal Reserve's sole responsibility has been to change interest rates in accordance with economic growth. Most particularly, if they notice economic growth naturally s slowing down, um, you know, with normal rates of inflation, what they want to do is lower interest rates to promote further growth, which is basically what we saw, um, you know, coming out of the great financial crisis and with the introduction of quantitative easing. We saw the, t the Federal Reserve deploy tools that allowed uh, economic um, growth to occur. Um, and because inflation was not a problem, you know, we were able to introduce QE um, without having any consequences of it for a very, very long time.
And basically what we're seeing, <coughs> what we saw was the lowest uh, unemployment in a very long time. You know, the federal job was doing a tremendous, the Federal Reserve was doing a tremendous job um, keeping unemployment low and keeping economic growth high. Um, but now we're coming out of this period of a ton of stimulus and high velocity of money. And inflation is caused by the high velocity of money. Basically, it's when money is being exchanged between businesses and consumers and other businesses at such a high frequency, um, thanks in most part to what I think was the result of the stimulus, um, unlimited liquidity and the stimulus checks for consumers and whatnot. And you have that alongside a supply chain crunch where um, you know, stores can't get the goods that they need, and it costs more to get them delivered and whatnot. And <clears throat> you had this environment where people had plenty of money to spend whatever they needed to to get those things. But now, um, it's interesting now because now there is a you know people's there's a there's a crunch on people's wallets. I think be before the pandemic, um, fifty percent of people or forty three percent of people were living paycheck to paycheck. The number's up to sixty four percent now. So not only do you have this consumer behavior where it was pretty lackadaisical about how they spent their money, now you're having financial pressure on their wallet and their income, and they're trying to go out and buy the things that they need at a fast rate to pre to prevent them from having to pay, say, fifty cents more a gallon on gas next week. Um, so it's interesting because you have this supply chain crunch. Um, and you had this rampant demand coming out of um, the pandemic, but now you see this demand kind of building on top of each other because people are trying to front run price appreciations, whether it be meat or gas or, you know, certain products, food products. You know, there's talk of, talk of a food shortage now. Um, so as the products get more scarce and the consumers know that, they've been trying to stock up, driving demand even higher for the products while supply is staying the same or even getting worse. So as a result of that, you have this incredibly high inflation. And the Federal Reserve basically has two options here, which is do we curb the demand for uh, spending money by tightening the monetary supply and making financial circumstances for the velocity of money far more difficult um, or let things like the toilet paper fiasco of 2020 continue with nearly every product that there's a shortage of known to man and let inflation and the fear of inflation compound on itself to higher levels. So the Fed has basically opted saying, we're not going to prioritize on employment right now. We think the biggest risk to citizens of the United States of America is inflation and the crunch that this is having on their wallets. So they have opted for tools that are going to reduce inflation first, which might have a later down the road impact on employment, which I'll get to in a little bit here. But the Fed has basically opted for this idea of monetary tightening. Um, so not only are they raising interest rates in order to curb demand for monetary velocity and spending, but they also announced yesterday that they are going to be beginning the balance sheet runoff. So essentially what that means is during the pandemic, they were buying trillions of dollars, you know, hundreds of billions each month of, of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities um, in order to keep the economy rather stable. And they were adding this to their balance sheet. Um, now has come the point in time where they are going to try to offload some of the bonds that they were purchasing and some of the mortgage-backed securities that they were purchasing onto public markets. Um, 
towards you know institutional and retail investors um now that these institutions and retail investors should hypothetically um, be more financially stable because of the measures that the Federal Reserve took in 2020. Um, so this is what's known as quantitative tightening. So I want you, I'm going I'm to try to give you the best example that I can here. I want you to think of the United States monetary system as this sort of like big sink, like a kind of like a pool-sized sink with a bunch of different faucets on it. Um, and so I want you to picture that these faucets are running and, uh, you know, the citizens in the United States are like sitting in the sink in inner tubes, like as if it was a water park or a wave pool or something like that. So what we had going on in 2020 was the Fed took all of those faucets and they cranked them to the max. And they plugged the sink at the bottom to make sure that no money was flowing out of the system. Tremendous money and water, you know, water is the metaphor for money, was flowing into the system. And that it was overflowing to keep the people afloat, okay? That was quantitative easing. And that was basically um, in, in the money printing that the Fed was um, taking part in in 2020. Now, I want you to think of quantitative tightening as, you know, picture the, this faucet and the sink and the people sitting in the pool and there's money, excuse me, water flowing over. Quantitative tightening is when the Fed turns off all the faucets, right? So people are like, hey, well, you know, what the fuck happened? Why the water stopped? But then they loosen the sink plug a little bit. So not only is there no money flowing into the system, which is what we had starting in March when they decided they were not going to be purchasing any more assets and we were kind of in this limbo where no money was coming into the system but no money was going out either. But now quantitative tightening is what the Fed basically just announced with the balance sheet runoff, which is um, they're not injecting any water into the sink anymore, but you're actually removing a little bit of water. Um, and as a result of that, you're obviously going to have the citizens, uh, you know, not be not riding as high in the sink and you know it's going to deflate things a little bit here so um quantitative tightening is that idea of nobody's being injected into the system and actually money is starting to flow out of the system um so that as a result um is is making money more scarce and um which is why uh, you have people and markets in general not wanting not having a risk appetite because why would you want to deploy your risk when um you know there is less money in the system and money becomes more scarce to hold to to uh to earn yield on um it's just harder to come by um and the reason that they're engaging in this quantitative tightening is because the reason you had inflation was because there was an abundance of money there was so much floating floating around in the system that you had people, you know, shelling it out for things that they probably shouldn't have been buying and taking on a ton of consumer debt and leveraging their asset portfolios and gambling in the options casino and, um, you know, doing doing things like that as a result of uh, really, really low interest rates. And now that um, inflation became a problem as a result of that sort of stimulus, you have to disincentivize people to behave in those manners anymore you basically want people to slow down their spending because if they slow down their spending then that will obviously curb demand um and, and cause inflation to come down and what you have is this idea of a soft landing 
because everybody knows what causes recession is changes in consumer spending, right? When consumers decide, hey, I need to stop spending this type of money because I'm worried about losing my job or the economy is not functioning super well right now and I need to hold on to this money instead of stop spending it. Um, that's when you get recessions. That's when you get a pullback in, you know, economic um, economic growth um, that causes those recessions. So it's a very, very difficult situation because now you're starting to see people trying to preserve their capital. Whereas in 2020, right, people were going and they're, you know, getting cars at 0% interest and they were buying homes that were up 40% in the last two years because they could get a 2% interest rate on their mortgage. And, you know, there was no reason to not shell out your money when interest rates were that low and whatnot. But now that interest rates are going up, uh, you are really starting to see people panic. And you have that alongside this massive inflation problem that hasn't been this bad in four decades. And um, you were having some people seriously, seriously consider what they are doing with their money. And, and if it's become severe enough to where people are trying to hoard their money, then you have those changes in consumer spending habits that leave us that can lead us into a recession. Um, and as I talked about in the previous Tiny Town episode, um, in Q1, we saw a contraction in GDP. Um, and a recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of GDP contractions. So we are hypothetically halfway to a recession, basically meaning that the behaviors that engage from April to June of this year, as far as consumer spending goes, um, if people are not spending as much as they were in 2021, we could be in a recession by June of this year. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I honestly don't know. It, it, to me, it kind of seems like a recession um, uh, is, is the more likely outcome. Like I would put the odds at like 55% that that happens and maybe like, um, 45% that it doesn't. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. This is a very interesting situation. And I think what you'll start to see is, um, you know, if the CPI prints start coming in at lower rates, like inflation is coming down as a result of what the Fed's doing, then you might see somewhat recovery in economic growth and, and asset values and whatnot. But that's, it's a, this is probably in the same way that 2020 um, and 2021 were like the easiest market conditions of all time. I think this is probably the trickiest market conditions in the last 15 years or so. So it's a, it's a good scenario to probably stay put in. Um, but this leads me to like the last uh, talking point of this episode is what is the end game of this quantitative tightening? So I previously mentioned where, you know, the Fed has this idea of trying to create a soft landing where the Fed's able to curb inflation back to normal levels by raising interest rates so that they can curb growth and demand to the point where it fixes the inflation problem, but not so much to the point where we enter a recession and then are possibly faced with massive layoffs and unemployment and whatnot. So a lot of people are taking this as like, it's an inevitable probability that we're heading for a total disastrous 2008 level market crash. And although that is definitely a possibility, I'm not saying that it's not, um, we don't know that at all really. And it's a very difficult thing to predict because, um, you know, you can't really predict interest rates or that well. Um, Peter Lynch once said that if anybody can predict interest rates right three years or three times in a row, they would be a billionaire. Um, and he's absolutely right. Um, but I think something that's interesting that people aren't considering is that if inflation is 
under control and we do have gets under control and we do have a soft landing or if there is some sort of market crash um, and there is a recession both of those scenarios have the same response and the same outcome from the fed and it's if the fed can pull off this soft landing and get inflation back to normal levels of two to three percent they can begin a process of cutting interest rates once again to stimulate any economic growth that might have been deterred by getting inflation under control. Okay, And if the market does enter a recession, it will immediately, just something like that happening, deter people from taking on consumer debt and it will directly affect the personal financial risk that people are willing to take on if they start to begin to fear that their job is on thin ice. So this, in and of itself, will probably cure the inflation problem if we were to enter a recession because people would just not be spending money as much. Um, and then that, in turn, would obviously introduce an unemployment problem in which, again, cutting interest rates and stimulus would be the only answer to get us out of again. So what I think a lot of people are failing to consider is that the end game is either QE or new invention of a monetary tool like QE that allows for interest rates to be cut to stimulate economic growth and an increase in liquidity in the system. People don't remember 50%, over 50% of the world's economy is based on credit. We live in a debt economy and that debt is always serviced in order to generate more debt. And although people might like it, it works. And it works because everybody else in the world, except for a few countries like Singapore, are in just as much debt or even more. And the end game of all of this happening is currency devaluation in order to be able to finance that debt further, but price appreciation in those assets at a greater rate than currency devaluation because of low interest rates and economic growth that are able to generate wealth, okay? And that might piss a lot of people off. It doesn't really matter whether you like the idea or not, whether you want it to change, whether you think it's unfair. It's reality. This is the economic system we live in at this moment in time. And you must view the economic system as reality, not better, not worse. You can't view the current economic system as one that is failing because it has been working tremendously. You cannot view the economic system as something that is producing enormous generational wealth across all um, social classes because it's not, right? You need to understand that the way the economic system works is that the money flows to people in the lower class for them to spend and then back into the upper class, right? Every time we have stimulus, checks handed out to people, what do they do? They go out to Target, they buy TVs. That money goes from the, without, without, you know, getting people up in a riot, right? The federal government is able to take money, give it to people. If they're smart, they're going to use it on the things that they need. But eventually, all of the capital handed to the people ends up in the hands of business, and if the capital ends up in the hands of business, that's what creates economic growth. And the money flowing into the capital of business this is what allows those businesses to expand to create more jobs for that cycle to continue. Where people work, they earn money, they hand it back to a business, right? That is like the metaphorical um, 
hamster wheel that uh, most of America is on. But that is the reality of our system. And if people are smart enough, they can take some of the capital that they earn, invest it into the system by owning ownership in parts of those businesses, and then be able to be a beneficiary of those businesses continuing to grow as a result of consumer spending. Um, so you might not like the system. You might think it's unfair. You might view it as, well, you know, why should all these businesses be getting capital? Um, you know, we need to get more money to the lower class or, or the middle class and whatnot. But obviously, at the end of the day, this comes down to consumer spending and where the money flows. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if the Fed creates this soft landing or if the Fed, um, ideally, what we want is a soft landing, because if they can cut interest rates again, um, while inflation is under control, um, but not have us into recession, that's going to fuel a tremendous bull run. Um, in, in, in both crypto and stocks, which is the ideal scenario for most people. Um, but if there is, in fact, a crash, um, I think people need to really take advantage of it because the only option, it doesn't matter what happens, really. Um, the only option is that the Fed is either going to reintroduce QE um, when, the, when we enter a recession or reintroduce QE um, once, uh, once inflation is under control or a tool that is a new tool that is better than liquidity um because qe was invented in like 2017 basically i mean japan was doing it for a while but it wasn't used in the u.s till like 2016 or 2017 but the end result is lower interest rates and um better economic growth which is a huge uh, shift in the economic environment that will promote an environment for investors and speculators to begin taking on plenty of risk again so your job in this current market environment uh, should not be super focused on trying to generate the maximum amount of return as possible. Your job is to basically preserve capital as well as you can and deploy it in places. Make sure that's a fucking huge and crucial point. You have to deploy it at some point in time um, in order to be a beneficiary of asset appreciation once QE begins again. Deploy it in a place where you feel there's value. If you're somebody that doesn't believe in crypto, don't deploy it in crypto. Deploy it in your favorite dividend stocks and index funds and whatever makes you feel comfortable, whatever lets you sleep at the end of the day. If you feel that you cannot sleep at night, if you're only generating a 10% return and you need to invest it in crypto so that you can generate multiples, then do that as long as you feel that the price you're getting is somewhat valuable in relation to previous economic circumstances. And then your job is to basically preserve and survive long enough to when the Fed eventually cranks that faucet back on to promote economic growth, because that's the only way for the system to function long term. So I hope this episode was insightful. Uh, if you have any questions, um, you can try to DM me. DMs are getting pretty flooded for me, um, so maybe tweet me and I'll be able to um, reply to your question better. Um, please share this with anybody who you feel might find it of value. And uh, of course, thank you guys so much for listening. And I really did hope you enjoyed this episode of Tennytown. Uh, make sure you sign up for Tennytown, whether it be the free or the paid version. Uh, you know, just get yourself on the email list. That way you get access to um, the episodes as they come out. So thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.